so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. In our current culture, where same-sex marriage is normalized and celebrated, there are helpful and unhelpful ways to respond. In this message, Russell Moore prepares churches to address this issue and the people involved with convictional kindness. Let's listen now. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's start reading with verse 22 and read on through the end of the chapter. And since these words are breathed out by the Holy Spirit and come with the exact same authority as if our Lord Jesus himself were standing here speaking these words to us, would you please stand with me out of reverence for the voice of our King? The Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul to Timothy, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Let's pray. Holy Father God, we know that we are not simply gathered here tonight in this room in Austin, Texas, and connected with people and and churches all over the country and all over the world through digital technology. Father, we know that more importantly is a technology that the world knows not of, that we're connected right now to an already existing worship service in the heavenly places. And Father, we are gathered together before the heavenly Mount Zion, confessing with the redeemed of all of the ages, with myriads and myriads of angels, Jesus Christ is Lord. And so would you protect us from anything that is false? Would you give us a love for those things that are true and good? And would you enable us to love the people in the communities around us through your word tonight? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I was walking around the corner the day of the Supreme Court uh, arguments over same-sex marriage on my way uh, there to be at the Supreme Court. And as I was coming around the corner from my office, I heard somebody on a bullhorn yelling angrily. And I immediately turned to some friends who were with me and said, please don't let that be one of us. And as I came around the corner... I saw someone standing there with Bible verses on placards and with the bullhorn screaming at the protesters on the other side and the people who were gathered on the other side. This person was yelling, you're condemned, you're self-condemned, you're going to hell. 
And as he was yelling this through the bullhorn, a group of uh, men dressed as Catholic nuns with all sorts of garish makeup, calling themselves the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, were dancing along in front, laughing about the message that's coming over the bullhorn. And I winced when I heard this man on the bullhorn acting as though he were speaking for Jesus Christ, saying, you're going to go to hell and don't expect me to cry for you when you do. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we live in a world right now in all of the fractures that are going on, especially around issues of sexuality, where it seems so often in many of our communities and neighborhoods that we have the sisters of perpetual indulgence versus the brothers of perpetual outrage. And yet we have been called to be a people of the gospel. And we have been called to be a people of both truth and grace, of both conviction and kindness in a world that is often fearful and angry. Text that we just read some moments ago was written by the apostle to his disciple, Timothy. And Timothy had a problem that you can see throughout these letters that Paul writes to him. One of the problems that Timothy had was his fearfulness, his timidity. Paul is constantly having to say to him, don't give yourself over to a spirit of fear. He's having to tell him, stir up that, that flame that God has put within you. He's had to say, be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Be a good farmer of Jesus Christ. Stay with the work. Don't let anyone despise you because you're young. Don't be weak. Don't be timid. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fight the good fight. Paul is saying, fight, fight, fight consistently to Timothy in these letters. And yet here in this section of the letter, he speaks to Timothy and he talks about kindness. He talks about gentleness. Now, at first glance, it would seem as though that Paul is taking a break from the fighting because we in our contemporary context tend to think of kindness and we tend to think of gentleness as being weakness or being passivity, or being politeness, a politeness that does not address or does not engage controversy. That is not what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Paul is not talking about a stopping of the fighting. He is saying to Timothy how to fight. How is it that you engage with conviction, and he says you do it with kindness. Now, this is critically important to understand if we are going to be a gospel people in a post-marriage America. I want us to think, first of all, about the conviction that Paul is talking about here. He, He starts the section that we read, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness. He says to Timothy, personally, I want you to run away from youthful passions. I want you to run toward the righteousness of God. And he talks to Timothy about what it means to teach, what it means to instruct, what it means, even Paul says here, to correct opponents. You know, there are some people 
in our context right now who, because these issues of sexuality and the sexual revolution are so controversial and so often confused, where people will often say to those who hold to even the most basic definition of a Christian sexual ethic, you're a bigot, that the proper response is to simply be silent and simply to say nothing, if not to completely capitulate on those issues. That is not an option for a gospel people. And it's not an option for several reasons. One reason is because sexuality is not an auxiliary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sexuality is not a matter simply of some isolated verses in the scripture that are contested. Sexuality instead is woven throughout the entire story of scripture because marriage and sexuality is not simply about a human arrangement. Instead, the Apostle Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 5, there is a reason why a man leaves father and mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. It's because God has embedded in the creation a picture of the gospel itself. When we see male and female, different and yet similar, coming together in one flesh, being fruitful and multiplying. We're not simply seeing a natural phenomenon. We are seeing an invitation hymn. We are seeing a gospel tract that God has embedded into the creation so that we will know how to recognize the union of a bridegroom and his bride together as one flesh where what belongs to him belongs to her and what belongs to her belongs to him. Exactly what the apostle Paul first encountered when he first met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting not a people who mention me in their constitution and bylaws? not a people who sing about me in their worship set. Why are you persecuting me, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, as a head with a body, pointing toward that day when the new Jerusalem comes down, Revelation 21 and 22, as a bride being received by her husband? The picture of sexuality is so woven throughout the pattern of Scripture, pointing us to what this means, that if we capitulate or if we are silent about what the Scripture teaches about marriage and sexuality, we are not just avoiding a social issue or a moral issue, we are avoiding a gospel issue. Now, what has changed in recent days is that the church now has the opportunity to articulate a distinctively Christian witness to marriage and sexuality. For a long time in the 20th century, local churches could count on the culture to do pre-evangelism. We could assume that the people in our neighborhoods aspired to family values and to the the same sort of marriages that Christians had, even if they didn't live up to them, and that we could use those marriages as a kind of bridge 
to get people to understand that life is better with Jesus and that these sorts of marriages can only happen with the power of the Holy Spirit. But now we're increasingly moving into a time where it's not simply that the cultures around us don't agree with us on the definition of marriage, it's that the cultures around us often don't even understand what we're talking about when we talk about marriage. This is not a new situation. This is exactly where the church was in the first century. The church was not birthed in Mayberry, but in a Roman empire that had a completely different view of sexuality from a Christian sexual ethic. Now what the church is required to do is to do precisely what the Apostle Paul is doing when he's teaching the church at Ephesus right there in a, in a place filled with temple prostitution, right there in a place filled with fertility goddess worship, what it means to picture the gospel through marriages. We must learn how to teach what marriage is, and we don't start that in premarital counseling, and we don't start that when we're in a debate over the definition of marriage. We start that by raising up children to know what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and what it means to have a God who has created both male and female who need one another. It also means that we have to learn to articulate in our churches what it means for the entire body of Christ to be involved in the discipleship of marriage. So often we have stood up and preached and taught on marriage as though we are speaking only to the couples who are married or the couples who are about to be married as though the singles in the room or the widows or the widowers in the room do not have a stake in marriage. Ephesians chapter five is not a side note given to the married couples in the church at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter five is given to the entire church at Ephesus. Why? Because we are members of one another. The single person in the congregation needs to be discipled on a theology of, of marriage because that single person has to hold the rest of the congregation accountable to their vows, standing with them and, and laboring with them through these vows. We have to recover an articulation of marriage that goes to the whole body, the whole church that is ongoing teaching within our local congregations about what marriage means and why this is everybody's business. Sometimes people will say to me, I sure wouldn't want your job having to talk about all of these controversial issues all the time. And I'll usually say, these issues actually aren't the most controversial things I talk about. The most controversial thing that I ever say is to a couple coming to be married that I won't let them write their own vows. That's controversy. I can take television debates. That's controversy. And the reason that I don't do that is because there is an American mindset behind it that assumes that a marriage is simply about the love of the couple involved and that the wedding ceremony is the couple 
telling everyone else that they are now committed to one another in a romantic sense. That is exactly the view of marriage that has led us to the cultural crisis at this point. The couple coming to be joined together in marriage don't by themselves even know what they will vow to one another. They need the rest of the body of Christ, those who've gone before and those who will come behind to know what it means to commit to be there by the bedside with someone with Alzheimer's disease who doesn't even recognize you anymore to know what it is to commit and to know that you'll be there when that child has died and your, your marriage is under stress, to make a vow to one another to know what it means to, to be there when there's that adulterous relationship and the marriage hits a moment of crisis. We need the entire body of Christ together in the articulation, not only of what to avoid, flee youthful passions, but also of what to pursue, love, peace, righteousness, and embodying that within our own congregations, which means that if we are going to be the people who hold to a conviction about the definition of marriage and about the meaning of human sexuality, we must have a theology of singleness and a theology of what it means to bear a cross. There are many people, gay and lesbian people and others in our communities who when they hear us articulate the gospel and they understand where we stand convictionally on what it means to follow Christ in obedience in areas of sexuality, they assume that what that means is that they must live a life of loneliness and die alone. Because we often live in a culture where we are so segmented away from one another that if there is not this marriage contract, then that means, as Justice Kennedy said in, in uh, the Supreme Court uh, ruling, that there will be no one to hear you at night. We have to understand that and we have to embody a different way of living which we should have been embodying all along. There is no one in the body of Christ who dies alone because all of us in the body of Christ are part of a family. We are brothers and sisters to one another and we must create churches that are not simply units of nuclear families that are driving in and driving out but churches that are families and households where we are living life with one another and where single people and married people are not segmented away from one another, but are deeply and authentically involved in one another's lives. And to do that without the assumption that singleness is deficient. If singleness is deficient, then we are following a deficient Messiah. If singleness is deficient, then the message of the gospel that came to us through the missionary explosion of Paul is deficient. We must honor and recognize singleness and we must stand and call with boldness to conviction. One of the reasons that some Christians are reluctant to talk about these controversial issues of sexuality is because they've seen people like that guy with the bullhorn. 
And they, they know that they have hurting people in their communities. And they know that this is going to cause some people to become offended and some people even to get up and leave. And they assume if we simply don't talk about it, then we will be showing kindness to our neighbors. But that is no kindness. And one of the reasons that is not kindness is because issues of sexuality are deeply embedded in the conscience. Romans 2 tells us that there is a law of God that is written into every conscience that every human being apart from Christ is wanting to hold down and to silence. If we do not speak of sin, we cannot speak of grace. Because where there is no sin, there is no grace needed. There is nothing to be forgiven if there has not been a transgression. In order to deliver good news to burdened consciences, we have to speak and to say what they already know in a deep and primal sense that something has gone desperately wrong. The people who silence themselves are not going to be the people who are going to be able to speak to those consciences. And we also have to be the people who do exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in this letter. As he goes on later in 2 Timothy 3, and he talks about false teachers within the church. There's a very different tone that the Apostle takes toward those who are on the outside, those who are struggling and those who are burdened down with sin. It's a different tone than he takes for the Christian who is tempted and the Christian who is struggling and the Christian who is falling and seeking help within the church. And then those who are within the body of Christ who are teaching false doctrine. And specifically, he talks about the kind of false doctrine that is burdened down with various passions. We have some people within the church of Jesus Christ who would say to us that the apostles and prophets did not know what we know now about sexual orientation and inclination. And if they had, they would have had a different view than the view they articulated in Holy Scripture. This is not simply a debate over the interpretation of texts. This is exactly what we see in the first century with a competition between apostles. There are some who will put themselves as apostles in contrast to the apostleship of Paul. And even more than that, in recent days, as one figure has said, Jesus himself was wrong about sexuality. Now that takes quite a Messiah complex to correct the actual Messiah while claiming to follow him. But there will be people who will do this. It will not persist. We have to be the people who maintain conviction, which means correcting opponents, but we do it, Paul says, with kindness. Now, there are some people who, when they read passages like this about kindness, and especially as it relates to these issues over sexuality, would assume that kindness can be a kind of strategy, and that kindness is a way to avoid conflict especially over these very heated issues of marriage definition and, and sexuality. The kind of kindness that the Bible is talking about here, the fruit of the Spirit that is kindness and gentleness, does not avoid controversy. 
As a matter of fact, this sort of kindness will create more controversy. The controversy that you ought to be receiving is controversy that is in stereo. In our context and in our culture, if you do not have people saying, you hold to a bigoted and dangerous and limited view of human sexuality, then you probably are not preaching the whole counsel of God. And if you do not have people saying you are soft on homosexuality because you speak with mercy and with gentleness to your gay and lesbian neighbors, you are probably not preaching the whole counsel of God. Jesus gets castigated for eating with tax collectors, and then he gets castigated for calling tax collectors to repentance. If we will follow Jesus, we will be receiving both of those things at the same time because we are fighting a different kind of fight. Paul says here, I don't want you to be involved in foolish and ignorant controversies. I don't want you to be quarrelsome. In other words, I don't want you to be the sort of person who loves to fight for the sake of a fight. There are some people including sometimes within our churches, who will take biblical positions simply because they love to fight and to quarrel with their enemies. Doesn't make those biblical positions wrong, but it is of great spiritual danger and peril, and it does nothing for the advance of the gospel. Paul says, I do not want you to be quarrelsome. I want you to be kind. I want you to be gentle. And he says, I want you to patiently endure evil. One of the biggest problems that we have when we try to engage with people who disagree with us on these issues of sexuality is that we make the issue our personal offense. When someone says you're bigoted, when someone says you're stupid, when someone says you're on the wrong side of history. We react to that the way that we would if someone insulted our mother, as though this is a matter of an insult against us. Paul says, no, no, you patiently endure evil, and he says you have a broader vision of what you're doing. He says you speak with kindness and you speak with gentleness so that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. The people who are the most angry with us right now may well be our future brothers and sisters in Christ. And not only that, the people who are the angriest with us right now, including on issues of sexuality, may be the people who are turned around and are the very people that God uses to lead our children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren to faith in Jesus Christ. We see sexual revolutionaries all around us, but there was never a sexual revolutionary quite as revolutionary as Augustine of Hippo who was not only deeply involved in sexual promiscuity, but also was a member of a cult. And God raised him up, converted him, changed his heart, and used him to turn the world upside down for Christ. We speak with kindness, not because we're afraid of our opponents, not because we're afraid of our enemies, but because we are representing Christ. So we speak 
what he has told us to say, but we also speak it the way that he says it. We speak not only Christian truths, but we speak them with a Christian accent. Why? Because people don't change their minds because of a pile of arguments. People don't change their minds because we have humiliated them. People have hearts changed when they encounter the risen Christ who calls them by name. And the risen Christ speaks through the word and speaks never backing down from the truth, but speaking with a kindness and a gentleness that says, come and receive newness of life. We have to be the people who do exactly what Jesus does with the woman at the well in John 4. He doesn't avoid the issue of her sexual immorality. The very thing she wants to keep off the table. He says, woman, go get your husband. But he doesn't leave it there. He says, and come here. If we are going to break through the very problem that the people in our communities have, which was the very problem that every single one of us had prior to coming to know Christ, then we are going to have to do that with the voice of Christ that is able to break that power. And that means patiently enduring with people and doing so with confidence. The reason why so many Christians are scared The reason why so many Christians are wanting to be silent is because they've lost confidence in the gospel. And the reason why so many other Christians are so angry and frantic is because they've lost confidence in the gospel. You can see this even in the days after the Supreme Court decision. Some Christians who act as though the Supreme Court of the United States is able to get the corpse of Jesus back into that grave. No, we have words of life and words that bring with them their their very own power of God. So why would we not then be the people who have confidence moving forward and when the culture says you're on the wrong side of history, our response is not to be offended by that. Our response is not to seek to humiliate the people who say that. Our response is to say, yeah, We've been on the wrong side of history since AD 33. The right side of history was the Roman Empire. The worst place you could be in the Roman Empire is crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem. But the Roman Empire is dead and Jesus Christ is feeling fine. So we ought to have the sort of confidence that isn't fearful and self-protective, but that is willing to speak the truth and willing to patiently endure with people as we do so, knowing that there are going to be refugees from the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution that says that a person's life is bound up in his sexual identity or her sexual history and that a person's life and meaning and purpose can be accomplished by following a revision and a redefinition of marriage and sexuality, will not be able to keep its promises. 
And if we are going to reach the people in our communities, and if we are going to reach the people in our own churches who are asking these questions, we are going to have to understand what it is that the people in our communities want. And what many of them celebrating outside the Supreme Court think that they will now have is exactly what their parents or grandparents had in marriage. They are buying into a kind of prosperity gospel that is not going to be able to be sustainable. And we are going to have people who are hurt and wounded and disappointed and asking, where can I go from here? Well, the question is, what kind of people are going to be able to reach those refugees? The people who have given up the gospel will not be able to reach those refugees. Not only because we will not have anything distinctive to say, but also because we will no longer have the respect of our mission field. People can read texts. They understand and they know what the Bible says. And if we back away from what the Scripture says, then the people in our communities will know you are so fearful of being unfashionable that you are not willing to stand by the very words that you claim to believe. So how can I believe you when you tell me how I can be resurrected from the dead if I can't even trust you to tell me the truth about marriage and sexuality? People who've given up on the gospel and on the truth of the scripture will not be able to reach those refugees. And the people who have screamed and yelled with perpetual outrage at those refugees will not be able to reach them either. The people who have acted as though they are a special class of sinners, somehow cordoned off from the rest of the advance of the gospel. The people who have ridiculed them. The people who have stood silent when some of them have been thrown out of their homes into the streets, or when some of them across the ocean have been hunted down and imprisoned and even killed. The people who've raised money off of them, rather than speaking to them with compassion and truth, will not be able to reach those refugees. So who will be the people to reach them? It will be the people who confidently stand with what the scripture has revealed. Thus saith the Lord, such will not inherit the kingdom of God. With tears in our eyes, and the people who understand and know that God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved. And we are the people who are saying, you are not your sexual history. You are not your sexual identity. If you cry out in faith, to Jesus Christ, you are so joined to him and you are so hidden in him that when God sees you, he does not see your temptation. He does not see your history. He sees you exactly as he sees Jesus of Nazareth. This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. 
And yes, you will have a hard and difficult life of temptation. Every Christian does. And that's the reason why we have the body of Christ where the weak in one area are borne up by the strong in that area and those same strong are weak in another area and they're borne up by the people who are strong in that area. And we move forward together as a family holding to the truth of Scripture, reminding ourselves of who we are in the gospel and speaking a word to the outside world. You are not a different kind of person than we are because we are not a righteous remnant. We are not a moral majority. We are just crucified sinners. And if we do that and if we speak that with the confidence that knows that we have not lost anything, we never had a Christian America to lose. Our frame of reference was not the 1950s or the 1980s. We are not union reps for the golden past. We are pilgrims from the future, and we have not come to reclaim America. We have come to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we'll do that in the future, and we will do that without hand-wringing, and we will do that without fist-clenching, and we will do that without the kind of pride that says to God, in all of our griping and complaining about cultural decline, God, we deserve a better mission field than the one that you gave us. No, 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 no. God decided precisely when you would be born, and God decided precisely when you would be born again, and he decided that the church would be here in a moment such as this in order to bear witness to that that gives freedom and liberation to those who are weighted down and heavy laden. And if we will not take up that joyful burden, then God will raise up others who will take it. But in the meantime, we'll speak with confidence, we'll speak with conviction, We'll speak with kindness. Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. If you found this episode helpful, be sure to share it with others. And join us next week as we listen to a panel discussion on Christian ethics featuring Matt Chandler and Russell Moore.